Well, we have been, uh, this is actually the 14th week in our series, Secure Forever. And uh, today we're wrapping things up, and I've entitled this Biblical Solutions for the Problem at Hand. Biblical Solutions for the Problem at Hand. Now, the problem at hand has been the false teaching of the perseverance of the saints. As we have seen very clearly, and I really would have a hard time anybody being able to mount an intelligent argument against what we've covered so far. But nevertheless, there are some things that I think as we wrap this up, we ought to be thinking about. And folks, there's responsibility for those of us, especially for those of us who are believers. We have a responsibility okay, to the world around us, okay? When we as Christians get this mentality that, you know what, I'm, I'm saved and therefore the rest of my life doesn't matter, friend, you are, you're being willfully ignorant of the scriptures. Now, yes, it's true, once you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're saved forever. Whether you succeed or fail in your daily walk, God says he'll never lose you, never cast you out, but that doesn't mean that we just now have some sort of a nonchalant attitude towards the things of God. As a matter of fact, we ought to be more aware and more excited about spiritual things than we've ever been in our lives. Now, with what we've covered during this series, there are always, though, going to be objections by those who embrace some form of works for salvation. Okay, the perseverance of the saints is works for salvation. And I know people say, well, no, that's eternal security. No, it's only eternal security if you stay faithful. And if you have to stay faithful to be eternally secure, that's works for salvation because you have to be faithful. See, the emphasis needs to be on the work of Christ, not your work. That's biblical salvation. That's Bible salvation. But there will always be those who have objections to what we've covered And uh, they embrace some sort of works for salvation, either front-loading the gospel or back-loading the gospel. And there are several passages that people want to use to try to refute the truth that we've covered in this series. Invariably, you you cover something like this and they'll say, what about James 2? Hmm? What about James 2? (laughs) Well, listen, we've done the epistle of James I don't know how many times in this church. James 2 is a wonderful passage, but it isn't teaching works for salvation. What about 1 John 3? Huh? What about 1 John 3? Well, you know what? Guess what? Keep coming on Sunday nights because we started a verse-by-verse study in 1 John, and we're going to get there to chapter 3, and we're going to cover every single verse in chapter 3. Now, listen, I have dealt with them both as well as some other passages in my book, Secure Forever. We do have that available here in the Resource Center if you want to pick up a copy of that. And so we don't have time to cover it today because it would take all day to cover those things. But as we conclude the series today, let me say just a few things before we launch into the points today. Let me say I'm eternally grateful that I learned the life-changing truth of the gospel in 1972. I was raised for 19 years believing that my good works had some part in getting me to heaven. In that, because if you believe that, you do not have the assurance of salvation. You can't, because if it depends on you being faithful, you don't know if you're going to blow it later in life or not. And you've certainly already blown it, if you're honest. And so how can you say, well, I'm going to earn my way to heaven, or, or it depends on me and my faithfulness and persevering? No, you can't say that. No, in 1972, I trusted Jesus Christ and him alone as my Savior. I understood what Colleen sang this morning. 
okay, that you can't be saved by your works. It's only by what Christ did on the cross. And when I realized it, understanding to get to heaven, you have to be perfect, and I'm not. And I put my faith in Christ, God gave me eternal life. Let me show you an illustration here to explain this. This hand representing you and me, okay? Let my wallet represent our sin. Here we are. We are all sinners according to the Bible. I hope you would admit that because that's just being honest. The Bible says God loves us. He hates our sin, but he loves us. To go to heaven, you see, heaven's a perfect place. And for you to get in, you have to be sinless. Sinless. Well, none of us are. Truth of it is, we probably sin every single day. Now, here's the truth of it. God says because we've violated his word, because we've sinned, there's a penalty that goes with that. This is bad news, but it's true. The wages of sin, according to the Bible, is death. If we were to pay for our own sin, it's not by good works. It's by death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We would have to die physically and then spend forever separated from God in a literal hell. Okay, the word death, by the way, has the idea of separation. Okay, separation. Not annihilation, separation. So if if we're going to pay for our sin, we'd, we'd spend forever in hell doing that. God, though, does not want us to be separated from him. He wants us to live with him in heaven, but our sin has to be gone. Well, how are we going to do that? Now, religion, again, comes along and says, oh, you need to behave. You need to give. You need to stop. You need to start. You need to be baptized. You need to keep the commandments. You need to make a commitment. You have to reform your life. You have to do this. You have to do that. All of those things, missing the point. Folks, good works are good, but good works don't take away the sin. Death is the only payment for sin. Now, you can decide, are you going to pay for your own sin in the sense of take the penalty upon yourself and be separated from God for all eternity? Or are you going to accept the solution that God has provided out of his great love for you and me? And that's exactly what he did. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, God himself took on flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You notice the Son has no sin. Therefore, he could be a substitute for you and me, and that's what he did. Jesus lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, the sins we have committed or will commit, he took them all upon himself. He made the complete payment by his shed blood. He died, was buried, three days later came back from the dead, and he says in his word, if you will put your faith, your trust in him that he made that payment for you, he will give you as a gift everlasting life. Okay, let me just quote this. For God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You trust Christ, you're eternally secure. You are secure forever because he gives you everlasting life, not life until you fail or sin. No, everlasting life. Now that's salvation. And I am so grateful that I learned that clearly and plainly at age 19, and I put my trust in Christ as my Savior. I'm also thankful that early in my Christian life, I was discipled in the truth of grace. I was taught the truth about the old nature and the new nature and the battle that is there, and the scope of salvation, how to live the Christian life. These are things I was taught. I'm so grateful that I learned the truth as a believer. I fondly remember, by the way, year and a half 
After I got saved, I was in Bible college and, and I had the privilege of working with a couple of my roommates and, and they said, hey, why don't you come down with us to what we do on Friday night? And I said, what's that? And they said, well, we work with junior high kids. Thinking, uh, I think I have to be busy that night, you know? Uh, I remember what junior high was like. No, the truth of it is junior high kids are awesome. And they're still awesome, by the way. They're still awesome. Now, granted, it takes their unique age group, and it takes usually two people to every one junior higher, but, but that's okay. It's okay. And you know what? I went and I started fear and trembling because you understand I was, let's see, 21, 22 years old at that point, and here I am with junior high kids, and, and I wasn't the most secure person. I was somewhat self-conscious, and I thought, how are they going to be with me? I mean, are they going to... I was starting to learn the guitar and stuff, but I didn't quite have it and, and all these kind of things. And, and I figured they're going to laugh and this and that because I remember what it was like to be in junior high. And they so accepted me and I just fell in love with junior high kids. I just fell in love with them. And that ministry, it was called Ranch, okay, in South Miami. That ministry was such a huge blessing and I had the privilege, started working with that around... Thanksgiving of 1973. And that following spring, I had the privilege of taking that ministry over. And folks, listen, that simple gospel message, I had the privilege of seeing scores, scores of kids to come to know Christ as their savior. And all I did was explain what I've already explained to you using a wallet as an illustration because that's how I got saved. And I saw so many come to know Christ as savior. And you know what? So many of them, when they got saved, what did they want to do? They wanted to go share it with somebody else. They didn't want to go out and live in sin. They wanted to go share it with somebody else. Why? Because it was good news. Just like the Bible says, the word gospel means good news. And it was good news. And they were excited about it. And so they kept bringing their friends and more of them got saved. And, and it wasn't me. It was the word of God, the power of the gospel. This is where it's at. You see, they were excited about the grace of God. And I look back at that time and it was such a, it was a perfect simplicity and joy of ministry, dealing with people one-on-one and sharing Christ and singing encouraging songs about the Lord and all. Simple, beautiful ministry, not bogged down. Wasn't a lot of administration and stuff. It was just the simplicity of ministry. Have you ever been there? Boy, once you get a taste of that, it's a wonderful thing. Well, since then, I've seen many, many people trust Christ the Savior over the years. And through our ministry here and through uh, serving him and had the privilege of discipling many of those people who trusted Christ the Savior through our local church. And you know what? Lives have been changed and lives have been transformed by God's grace, I can look out today and I, I can see people in this crowd today. You got saved through the ministry here by the grace of God and your lives have been changed and transformed. You see, the lie on the other side is this. Well, if you believe that stuff that salvation's a gift and you just trust Christ the Savior, then what that means is you just go out and live a life of sin. Well, how do you explain it? That these people who never had any interest in church or God or anything else, they got saved and they come to church three, four times a week. How do you explain it? 
Listen, not one person who has ever embraced the theology of grace that I have set forth in this series has ever been led to a life of sin because of it. No one who has embraced the theology we have covered has ever been led into a life of sin. When people say that's what happens, that's a lie. That isn't what happens a lot of the time. Now, are there exceptions? Yes, there are, okay? Here's the truth of it. The application of these truths has transformed those people into obedient children of God. You notice I said the application of those things. If you don't apply it, it doesn't happen. But the application of those things have transformed people into obedient children of God who love the Lord and they have a desire to serve him. Not because they have to, but because they want to. That's what grace is all about. I, as a Bible-believing pastor today, I want to see people saved and see them not only get saved, but live for Christ as much as anybody does on this planet. Now, unfortunately, there are people who believe in salvation by grace who do not live lives that reflect positively on that message. What do I say to them? Shame on you. That's what I say. Shame on you. This has given ammunition to those who believe in a false gospel, a lordship salvation gospel. This gives them ammunition against us. And unfortunately, people say, yeah, you're right, you're right, because I know people who believe and, and they don't live for the Lord like they should. Well, friend, listen, there are two different things here. One is how do you get saved? By putting your faith in Christ. The other one is once you're saved, should you live for the Lord? Yes, but it's not a requirement because if it was a requirement, then it would be works for salvation. Galatians 5.13, it says, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Look at that, freedom, freedom. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but do what instead? By love, serve one another. You see, why have we been saved? We have been saved to serve one another. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. By love, serve one another. That's what it says. This is what the Bible says. This is what we believe and teach here at this church. So what are some real solutions to this problem and this conflict at hand, okay? Well, let's go through those. Number one, we need to believe, understand, and teach the gospel of grace. Just because people abuse a doctrine does not make it a false doctrine. Let me say it again. Just because people abuse a doctrine doesn't make it a false doctrine. Yet so many people, that's the way they think today. Well, I know so-and-so, and they said they've put their faith in Christ as their Savior, and they're, they're living a life like the devil. And here's, here's their connection. Therefore, what they believe must not be true. Wait a minute. Your conclusion is a wrong one. They got saved. They're living life like the devil. Therefore, here's the correct answer. They need to confess their sin to God and submit to him and walk with him. We need to understand that. Listen, the only message that saves is grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That is the gospel and there is only one. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Look at it with me. It says this, for by grace are you saved. How are you saved? By grace. God's unmerited favor. For by grace are you saved through faith. How are you saved? By grace through faith. 
It isn't faith plus works. It's faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And then God clarifies it. And that not of yourselves. You're not saved of yourselves. Oh, wait a minute there, though. though. Don't you know, pastor, that where it says not of yourselves, that's referring to faith? No, it's not. The Greek construction does not accept that. For by grace are you saved through faith, are you saved? Not of yourselves goes back to how you're saved. That's the construction. That's true to the original. How do you know that? Because for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Well, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Look at the next part, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if it's not of works, then why are people saying that you have to believe in Christ and then there has to be works. The Bible says it's not of works. Once you're saved, should there be works? Yes, but should is a very different word than will or must. See, salvation is a gift, period. And there is no fine print in Scripture where God takes it away. It's a gift. Galatians chapter 1. You're in Galatians. Look at chapter 1 in verse 6. Paul says this, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. You notice this gospel is by grace. By grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. Unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. You notice in verse seven where it says, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert means to twist or distort into something of the opposite character. You should uh, do a study on this word and look at the different ways this Greek word is used in the New Testament and you will find it, it uses terms like turn from darkness to light. The word turn there is the same word. From what? From darkness to light, opposite, okay? When you pervert the gospel, the good news of Christ, which is based on grace, that which is the opposite character would be something based on works. So if it's not by grace, see false teachers come in and say, well, no, it's grace and. No, then you're turning it into something of the opposite character. Whereas God says it's a free gift of God, you're saying it's not. No, it's a gift. See, the gospel of grace is not something to be feared, folks. It's something to be embraced. I say this, a lot of this message today has to do with pastors and preachers directed towards them. It's directed to all of us, but it directed towards them. People in ministry, please listen carefully. The gospel of grace is not something to be feared. It is something to be embraced, Okay? If you are afraid of the gospel of grace, it's because you don't understand it, you don't understand the nature of it, and you don't understand that this is the foundation motivating factor of the Christian life. It's not fear of hell. If you're serving the Lord because of fear of hell, you're trusting in your works. You don't go to heaven by your works. You go to heaven by the grace of God. 
The gospel of grace is the only way to be saved. There is no other way. It is God's message and God's solution. Romans chapter 1, look at this with me. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, for it, singular, only one, only one gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that does what? Tell me. Believes, believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, if there's only one gospel and the condition of being saved is believing, then anything else is a false message. That's the point. Anything else. Now, what about the Christian life once you're saved? What about it? What does, if, if you respond properly to the grace of God that brings salvation to you, if you respond properly to it as a Christian, what will happen to you? Will you become a wicked, carnal, sinful, perverted person? No. Well, how would you become? I'm so excited you asked that. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. What about the Christian life? You see, here's the truth of it, friend. If you, if you get a handle on the grace of God, if you respond to the grace of God, here's the direction God will take you. If you respond to it. Number one, you trust Christ the Savior because then God saves you by his grace. Now that you're saved, God's grace is a presence in your life. How does God want us to respond? And what happens if we do respond? Now that's a big if, because that's what the Christian life is all about. Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation. See, this is why, don't be afraid of grace, embrace it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, here you go, teaching us, here's what grace teaches, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, a unique people, zealous of good works, zealous of good works. So the grace of God does not lead a person into a life of sin. The grace of God leads a person into a life of godliness if you respond properly to it. Notice several wonderful truths in these four verses. First, it is grace that brings salvation, verse 11. Secondly, it is grace that teaches us to live godly separated lives, verse 12. Third, it is grace that teaches us to look for Jesus to come back, verse 13. Fourth, it is grace as we look for the Lord to come back, it has a purifying effect on the life of a believer, verse 14. Why is that? If I expect Jesus to come back at any moment, I'm going to be careful about the way I live. Now, how did I get in that position? By grace, by trusting Christ as my Savior. Isn't the grace of God a marvelous thing? Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It's the only thing that'll bring enthusiasm and joy and excitement to your Christian life. Now, is this not what all of us want for believers, for our churches, and for the body of Christ in general? Yes, that's what everybody wants. But it comes through grace, not legalism, not works for salvation. See, 
people say, well, I, you know, I, 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 there are people in our church, you know, they're, they're, they're carnal. They're, they say they're saved, but they're not living for the Lord in all this. I know how to get them motivated. I'll add works to the gospel. Put that hellfire under them. That'll get them motivated. Well, false doctrine never motivates a person in a right direction, okay? Never motivates them into a, in a right direction. I'll say more about that in, in a few minutes. But let me say this, friend, very clearly. Carnality, carnality is not cured by adding works to the gospel. It's not gonna happen. How do you cure carnality? By teaching wonderful truths like eternal security, believe it or not. By teaching people the indwelling Holy Spirit. God goes with you everywhere you go as a believer. He lives inside you. By teaching how the reality of the two natures and how to have victory over the old nature in a believer. This is how carnality is cured. By teaching them about the judgment seat of Christ that yes, one day in heaven, we are gonna stand before the Lord and give an account for the lives we lived since we got saved. That's how carnality is cured. Carnality is not cured by perverting the gospel. That just makes things worse. Now the next vital point is often ignored or not even considered. Okay, and I'm sure, let me say this, I'm sure other people have said it sometime. (laughs) However, I have never heard it one time said, and I think it is a major, major issue today, that if we would take heed to doing the right thing in this area, it would really fix a whole lot within Christendom. Point number two. We need to adopt our theology from the Bible and not tradition. We need to adopt our theology from the Bible and not from tradition. Now, while tradition can be helpful at times concerning some practices and cultures of the past, it is all too often used, listen carefully, it is used to prove an interpretation. What do I mean by this? Here's what I mean. Church history is exactly that. Church history. It is a record of what happened in the past. It is not the word of God. It may contain some truth, but it isn't necessarily the truth. Nor can we completely be sure even of its faithfulness to the facts of what happened. Do you understand what I'm saying on this? You read church history. I can remember when I was in Bible college. Listen, I was just saved a few years. But here I am sitting in church history class. And I had this question as I'm going through church history. And we've got our book. And I've still got it on my shelf in my office. How do I know what I'm reading is true? How do I know that this is an accurate account of what really happened? You might say, well, you're a cynic. No, it's an honest question. Let me tell you, dear friend, the only 100% faithful account of church history is found in this book. That's it. That's it. And yet, what do we have today? A lot of people are getting their theology based on the past. That's where they're getting it. Listen, church history is not infallible and it is not inspired. 
Simply put, to base our theology on history or tradition is dangerous ground because it is settling for far less than what God has given us. He's given us an inspired book that is true for all ages. The truth of it endures forever, all right? Let me, let me give you an example of this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I hope you're still with me. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Acts chapter 20. This is so important for you to get today. And I want you to, I want you to do something. I want you to think about this after today. I want you to think when you hear things, what people are basing their teaching on. Are they basing their teaching on church history or are they basing their teaching on the infallible word of God? Acts chapter 20. Here's what's going on in Acts chapter 20. In the days of Paul and other apostles, false doctrines were already taking root in the church at large. Now, did you hear what I said? False doctrine, this is Paul we're talking about. This, what happens in Acts chapter 20 happened around AD 60. AD 60, that's less than 30 years after Jesus walked the planet. Less than 30 years. And it says in Acts 20, see, Paul gives this serious warning to the, to the elders at Ephesus, or of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, and verse 28. He says this, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, watch this now, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, this is the last time I'm going to see you guys, but I want you to know this, that once I leave, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of yourselves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now again, this is written around AD 60 or this took place around AD 60. And what is it saying? False doctrine was spreading like a deadly virus already. Paul knew the legalists were going to rise up and pollute the message that he was preaching. And he warns them. Says this is going to take place after I'm departed. See, we already know, folks, according to the history in the book of Acts, which is inspired, which is 100% accurate, we already know that the gospel of grace had already been attacked as early as A.D. 46. That's some 10 years, 13 years after Jesus was here. A.D. 46, if not sooner. And by the way, this is when the conference at Jerusalem took place in Acts chapter 15. Now, do you see how soon after Jesus was here that a polluted message was already a problem that had to be refuted? The epistle of Jude, the little one-chapter book right before the book of Galatians was written around A.D. 68, 69. Jude clearly tells us that the error had already crept into the church. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and four, they were to earnestly contend for the faith. Why? Because the faith was being attacked. False teaching was rampant. Again, 30, 35 years after Jesus was here. 
In John's epistles, written, we believe, between A.D. 90 and 95, we see that other false doctrines had crept into the church, and John had to refute them. First John, we see it mentioned, Gnosticism, we see false Christ, Antichrist, all of this. First John 4, 1 through 3. False doctrine in the early church was not something new. Okay? What's the point? Here's my point today. It is simply that we cannot rely on church tradition for our interpretation of the scriptures when dealing with doctrine. Yet much of what we hear and read today concerning the perseverance of the saints is a quote from some ancient church father or a catechism instead of the Bible, such as the Westminster Catechism. Listen, I'm no spring chicken, and I've read a lot over my years, and I can tell you how often this takes place, and it's still happening today, and it will continue in the future, where somebody who's written a book, some theologian who's got some false doctrine, what he does, and he says, well, you know, this, this idea of salvation being free gift, and this is a new idea because the church fathers didn't hold to this. Well, you know what? Jesus did. And so did the apostles. It was those who came in after them that perverted the truth of God. Don't quote to me about Arrhenius and Polycarp and, is he a fish or what? Polycarp, I don't know. (laughs) Sounds like a plastic fish, Polycarp. Anyway, I'm not interested. I'm sorry, I'm not interested. But see, here's what happens when they quote early church fathers. Here's what happens, folks. As a result, the errors just perpetuate themselves from generation to generation to generation. Now, it is sad to say, but many pastors and teachers today are spending more time in other men's commentaries than they are in the Word of God. This is one of the major reasons we have the problems we have today as far as false teaching is because... Where'd you get that interpretation? Well, I was reading so-and-so. As a matter of fact, I got a, an advertisement, an email yesterday, an offer for a certain new Bible software upgrade for some, some company. They're bragging about how easy it is to use and how easy it is to prepare messages on it. And boy, I'll tell you, my ears went up like a Doberman. Here's what they said. It's our new approach. It's centered on commentaries. I said, God help us. Centered on commentaries, what is wrong with you? Now, I know, listen, I'm I'm being bold today and passionate about this. Listen, folks, this is important that you get this. I'm telling you the truth in love. I would rather you believe what the Bible says than believe what I say. That may sound funny to say, but listen, I'm not the authority the Bible is. Now, as I'm true to the Bible, amen, you can believe it. But you, please feel free. Measure what I say by Scripture. That's the way it's supposed to be. We need to be careful. So, what happens? Here's what you hear. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody? You question them about their beliefs, and well, why do you believe that? And they say, or you give them the gospel, and they say, well, that can't be true. Why? Well, Dr. MacArthur says this, or Dr. Piper says this, or Alistair Begg says this. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does God say? What does God say? They're mortals just like we are. What does God say? That is the issue, folks. That is the issue, okay? Number three, 
We need to follow sound hermeneutical principles of Bible interpretation. You might say, what is a hermeneutical? It's the study or the doctrine of Bible interpretation. Okay, it's, it's kind of like my point is a play on what it is. We need to follow sound hermeneutical principles of Bible interpretation. Okay, what is the key one? Context, context, context. What does the context say? Okay, and by the way, this is why I'm not a big fan of Bible study groups. They sit in a circle. What do you believe it means? What do you believe it means? What do you believe it means? Okay, now you get into the context. Okay, well, my commentary says this, and I'm not saying all commentaries are bad. They're not, and listen, there are some valuable things, but always remember, it's this way, folks. If this is your commentary, this is how you study. You don't do this. You do this. So much of the false teaching that is being spread abroad today has come about because of an interpretation taken out of context. Study the word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study, 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 be diligent. Okay, number four, so important. We actually need to minister to the actual needs of both saved and lost people. We must deal with believers where they are and not introduce false doctrine to get them to change. It will only confuse them and it's gonna make things worse over time. And what's that gonna do? They're gonna ultimately fail and it's gonna lead them into despair as a person. Let me give you an example. Somebody with an addiction we started an addictions program many years ago and then we stopped it for a while. Now we have it going again. It's going really well. Going really well and I'm glad we have it. But when we started it, there was another church in St. Cloud who decided, well, they were going to start one too. I don't know why they think they have to compete with us. I refuse to compete. It's not about competing. It's about honoring God. And I said to somebody in our church, I said, it won't work over there. You know why? They hold the Lordship salvation. And anybody who holds the Lordship salvation, you cannot honestly have an addictions ministry because you will deny, here's the point, you will deny that if a person has an addiction, you'll deny that they're saved. Then you start dealing with them like they're lost, but they're not lost. They're saved. That's what I'm saying. Deal with the person where they're at. If a saved person has an addiction, what does it mean? It means they're a saved person and they happen to have an addiction. It doesn't mean they think they're saved, but they're not because they have an addiction. Do you see where I'm going with this? So important. See, adding works to the gospel will not bring life. Neither will it fix the problem. It only makes things worse. Neither will teaching of so-called perseverance of the saints ever produce a truly godly life. Any system that is man-focused will ultimately fail. Any system. It's all looking at Christ for everything. Looking at Christ. Looking at Christ. Let me give you an example. By the way, that same church, local church here in St. Cloud, years ago I was talking to their pastor who said, that a certain person we both happen to know was probably not saved because that person was going to a church. They, they said they had trusted Christ as Savior, but they were going to a church, a particular denominational church that did not believe correctly. And so he said they're not saved because if they were saved, they would leave that church. Do you see how subtle this is? 
Now you might say, well, shouldn't they leave that church that's preaching a false gospel? Yes, but that's not a condition for being saved. It doesn't prove anything. I disagreed with what he said. Let me draw attention to two issues with that. And the first is this, where does it say in the Bible that unless you leave a certain church that preaches false doctrine, you're not going to heaven? We had families uh, years ago in our church, they got saved out of Catholicism and, and they had a concern and, and, for, and a burden for their family. And you know the, the mom was of major concern for the, the wife. And, and so she talked and talked. And at first the, the mom was very anti, very much against our church. And then this wife, or the, yeah, this wife said, well, she believed her mom had trusted Christ as Savior. And then the question came up, well, well, can my mom still go to the Catholic Church and be saved? I said, she can be a Christian, but she's a disobedient Christian. Because if you're saved and you're going to a church that's preaching works for salvation, you're supposed to separate from them, 2 Corinthians 6. You are supposed to separate. And if you don't separate, what does it mean? It means you're disobedient. Does it mean you're not saved? No, the two are not the same. Every time we sin as Christians, we're disobedient Christians. Do you see it? A disobedient believer is still a believer, but he's disobedient. And the truth of it is this, that preacher was actually adding works to salvation. Because when you say you have to do this or do that, and if you don't, you're not saved, you're adding to the gospel. You're adding to the gospel. Salvation is simply by faith in Christ. The Bible doesn't say you have to do a number of acts of obedience along with believing to be saved. By the way, this preacher is a strong proponent of the perseverance of the saints. He believes it, he preaches it, he teaches it. His logic is this, if you're saved, you will do certain things and live a certain way, and if you don't do those things and live that certain way, you are not saved. That's what he teaches. Folks, let us lead a person to Christ first. Be convinced by what they say, by what they understand that they are truly saved. And then challenge him or her where he is to change and do what the Bible says he should. But let's keep the cart before the horse, okay? Or the horse before the cart, sorry. I'm almost done, so. Finished is more like it, right? But let's keep things straight. Let's lead them to Christ first. And then once they're saved, and as best as we know that they're saved, okay, and they, get, they got a grasp on it, then yes, we can start talking to them about how to grow as a Christian. But whether you grow or not does not determine whether you're saved or not. You should grow, but that's up to you. Let's close in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Remember, salvation by grace is not entering into a contract with God. It is simply receiving a gift. And that gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not a matter of achieving. It's a matter of receiving. God gives us salvation. He does not give us probation. Look at the simplicity of the word of God. Don't you love the clarity of scripture? How simple. Look at it. The wages of sin is death. Boy, is that not, that is the truth right there. The wages of sin is death, and that is true. But the gift of God, what is it? Is eternal life 
How do you get it? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You trust in him, he gives you the gift, and it's eternal life, it lasts forever. Isn't that a glorious message? Let's stand on it. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.